Welcome to 715, everybody. My name is Pastor Tellus. I'm the youth pastor here on staff and so excited to bring the message. Come on, youth. I heard a whoop, whoop. Can I get a whoop, whoop if you're in youth? There's one. I got the one. That's all I needed. Um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to tonight because if you're in this room and you're here for this series, Come Alive, there's an expectation in your heart, I already know, for life to be given, received, and really fully known and expressed in your life tonight. Come Alive series, Pastor AJ started us off with God is Life, an amazing message that really spoke to the life-giving power that God is inherently and gives by his spirit and through his word. And what I want to talk about tonight um, is about a different aspect of coming alive, a different aspect that is really, really uh, pressed on my heart, something that we've talked about even at Grace Covenant Church, heard words about maybe you've Felt, got, felt the Lord speaking to you in your, in your quiet time about, but I want to talk to us on the topic of revival, of revival. We're going to be in a few passages tonight, but specifically I want our first passage to be in Isaiah chapter 57. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15, and it says this. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, don't even know how you do that. Who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive, everyone say revive. To revive the spirit of the lowly. And to revive, everyone say revive. And to revive the heart of the contrite. What I want to talk about tonight and what I want to title this message is Viral Revival. A viral revival. Will you pray with me real quick? Lord, we expect your spirit. We are anticipating for you to do a work tonight. God, not by a special preaching or even by special worship, but by your spirit. We know that it's not by might. It's not by power, but by the spirit of God. So Lord, we are receiving your spirit tonight to revive us in a special and unique way. Lord, make us come alive tonight. Lord, it is your perfect will for us to live a revived life in Christ Jesus. And we know that it's done by your spirit, through your spirit, and to glorify the Son. So Lord, would you do something special tonight? We love you, Lord. And more importantly, you love us. Holy Spirit, empower us to live, look, and love more like Jesus today than we did yesterday. In Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. 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 Viral revival. Viral revival. Some of us know what the term viral means. If you're probably a millennial Gen Z, it's really easy for you to grasp. This term revival is all about something all of the sudden coming onto the scene, scene in a really, really um, a big, boisterous, maybe even culture-changing way. It can be a video, it can be a picture, and some, I'm going to show you guys a few pictures right now of, of things that are viral that we've probably experienced in our past. The first picture we're going to throw up here, you guys probably know what this is. You guys remember this video? You remember when this video went viral? Charlie bit my finger? If you guys remember this, maybe some of you do, some of you don't. We're going to throw a, little, a bunch of different pictures. But one of this, this video right here went crazy on YouTube. Everybody knows, Charlie bit me, right? You guys know the picture, Charlie, ouch, Charlie, that hurt. All of us know that for some reason because that video, what, went viral. There's another picture up here that we have, um, and a song was made out of this one. Uh, if we can remember, if, uh, if we throw it up here, it's, it's the, I don't want to spoil it in case we know. You guys remember this guy? Remember the bed intruder guy? 
you better hide your kids, hide your wife, because he's snatching your people up. It was, it was this interview of this guy who, it was kind of said he got his house broken into, right? Which is kind of like weird that we're laughing about it. But he had his house broken into, and, and all of a sudden he's like, man, you better hide your kids, hide your wife, hide your husbands, because they're snatching up everybody out here. It, it went viral. It was this moment where we all like, were like, oh, everybody knew what you were talking about when you talked about the bed intruder guy. There's another picture that we can throw up. This was a, the, uh, uh, something that swept the world, right? Pokemon Go. You guys remember this app? Some of us remember that app. It's the app where everybody's walking around on their phones, just swiping and, and catching Pokemon. It was, it was the dream of a generation to be able to actually catch Pokemon in the real world. Maybe you're like me and you got on the train for a minute, but it went viral. Everybody and their mom had this app and they were going everywhere trying to, people were like walking into the street trying to do Pokemon Go, right? There's, a, there's another picture uh, that we have up here. The dreaded dress. You guys remember the dress, right? The dress. I'm going to ask y'all, just real quick, if you see black and blue, raise your hand. Y'all need to get your eyes checked. That's not true. If you see white and gold, raise your hand. See, it's, oh, that's crazy. That's like, it's actually split, which is crazy. But this picture went viral, right? Because all, I don't know how. I still don't know how, right? Do you, I don't know if you know how, but talk to me after service. Somehow this picture went viral because half of the world sees black and blue and the other half sees white and gold. I see white and gold and I do not know how you guys see black and blue. But all of the sudden... Sometimes things pop on the scene where things just all of a sudden catch our attention, catch the attention of not just a couple of individuals, but catch the attention actually of a culture. It, it sparks up really, really quickly, and, and we get this viral sensation. Sometimes it's videos, sometimes it's pictures, but I want to talk about a viral revival. A viral revival. And the difference between this viral revival that we're going to talk about now is that Oftentimes when we have a social media, cultural, maybe even a societal revival, or I'm sorry, a, a viral sensation, it often pops up really quickly and then fades away really quickly. I mean, how many times have you guys thought about Pokemon Go or the bed intruder in the past five years? You thought about it when he was viral and not much after that. But the viral revival that we're going to be talking about tonight isn't just here today and gone tomorrow. It's not just a moment, it's not just a season, it's not just a meme, a picture, or a video, but this viral revival started over 2,000 years ago, and you and I are a product of somebody being revived in the Holy Spirit that went viral in a moment and did not pass away. That we are actually living in a revival. We're living from a revival, a revival that lasts comes from a people who are living revived. Who aren't just have been revived, but are actually living revived. The Great Awakening, when you think about awakenings and revivals, it's really important for us to think about our church history. In 1734, Jonathan Edwards was one of the first Americans who actually ushered in a revival in America. He actually was pastoring this church in Northampton, Massachusetts. And Edwards actually got discouraged because when Edwards was pastoring this church in Massachusetts, he was, he was preaching the gospel for months and months and only had a few couple people to show for his efforts. 
getting extremely discouraged, didn't know what to do with himself. And then all of a sudden, seemingly all of the sudden, what happens is that Edwards, as he's preaching, actually sees a, 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 a viral revival break out in his town. That in a matter of months, about 30% of his whole town came to Jesus. 300 out of 1,100 people came to Jesus in just about a few months, which actually sparked another revival in neighboring towns. Over 100 towns caught wind of what was going on. And all of a sudden, this ushers in the Great Awakening, as we call it, where George Whitfield comes. And essentially, this, uh, uh, people describe George Whitfield in Philadelphia in 1739 as the first American celebrity. Why? Because at the time there were 900,000 American colonists and over 80% of them had heard a sermon personally from George Whitfield. 80% of people, colonists in America, had actually heard a message from George Whitfield. There was a revival breaking out. That's similar if we talked about Jonathan Edwards. That is 27%. If we were in Fairfax County and we asked 20, and 27% of our entire county came to Jesus, of 1.1 million people, that means that it would actually be 297,000 people coming to Jesus in a couple months. A revival, an awakening came because of the Spirit of God moving on his people. Somebody said this, Jonathan Edwards, uh, about his rival, said it pleased God to display his free and sovereign mercy in the conversion of a great multitude of souls in a short space of time, turning them from a formal, cold, and careless profession of Christianity to the lively exercise of every Christian grace in the powerful practice of our holy religion. When we think about revival, we have to understand that it's not us who usher in a revival through special teaching, special preaching, or a special man, but it's God who ushers in a revival. Now, what I'm not doing is preaching a message on three easy steps to have a revival. I don't presume to be able to say that God is going to revive us if we do these simple things, that the Lord will revive you and revive your family, will revive our city and will revive our nation. What I'm not saying is that we simply just do a, a few steps and God will actually revive us. But what I am saying is that God made us who were dead in our trespasses, alive in Christ, so that we can live revived and not just be revived one time and now revive a city, nation, culture, and family family, a generation to the knowledge of Christ. That if we live as a revived people, that revival can come. We were dead in our trespasses. And what a revival really is, is a revival is when God supernaturally transformed his believers and unbelievers in an area with enthusiasm, passion, moves of the Holy Spirit, conviction, bold preaching, and repentance. When people truly come alive in Christ, this is when a revival comes. This Come Alive series, I think, is so important for our generation and for our city. So as we're talking about revival, what I think is so important for us to understand is this, is that God doesn't just wake us up, he keeps us up. And God just doesn't seemingly make us alive, he keeps us alive. And some of us are very content with just waking up in Christ and then going back to sleep. I prayed the prayer one time, I went to the church camp, I had the experience, I did the church thing, and now I'm awake. But it's 
It's actually God wanting to keep us awake and keep us alive instead of just one single moment that we've kind of developed in our Western worldview of, oh, I went to church, prayed the prayer, and now I'm an alive and come alive Christian. But I really believe that God's purpose is to keep us awake and to keep us alive. What I want to do is I want to look at the first revival in the New Testament. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read a verse in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and to give some context, what's going on is this is essentially the first revival of the New Testament. What happens is that Jesus has now risen, and his disciples, now apostles, are going and trying to spread the gospel to everybody that they know. One interesting thing about this is that Peter is actually the one who gives this gospel presentation to the people. Now, if you know anything about Peter, is that Peter was a knucklehead. In a few chapters before this, Peter was actually spread sprinting away, running away from Christ, and actually denied him three times before presenting the gospel in Acts 2. So what changed from the end of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to the beginning of Acts is that Peter wasn't just made alive once, but he was living revived. That one man who ran away from people saying, I've never met that guy, Jesus, all of a sudden is risking his life, preaching the gospel to thousands of people. One week he was hiding in an upper room, scared of the Jews, and the next week he was boldly proclaiming the gospel. What happened is that Peter came alive in Christ and now was kept alive in Christ. That he was revived. And Peter... It gives us an amazing gospel presentation. 3,000 people end up getting saved in Peter's gospel presentation. And it says this, right after 3,000 people get saved in Acts 2, chapter 2, verse 42, it says this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. And it says in verse 49, praising God and having favor with all people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The first revival happens right here in Acts 2.42 in the New Testament. And we in this building right now, if you think about it, are a product of the first New Testament revival. That we now are actually enjoying Peter's being, come, being made alive and now we are a product of the Holy Spirit making Peter alive, forming him into the image of Christ and now we are living on the heels of the, of the, of the preaching that Peter actually preached in Acts 2. That this is actually our history. This isn't a message about how to just start a revival. This is taking a case study look at the church and their New Testament revival and seeing what can we do to live as a revived people in Christ. It's really simple. Revival happens when people are Acts 2.42. When people are dedicated to the word, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. If I could say one scripture to context revival, it would be this. To dedicate ourselves to the word, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. The word. The word. We are a people of the word. 
We are a people of the word. Pastor AJ preached an amazing message last week about the word of God, accomplishing the will of God in the work of God. And we are a people of the word. Pastor AJ said it like this. The word of God releases the spirit of God to accomplish the work of God. The word of God releases the spirit of God to accomplish the work of God. What does that mean? It means that words have power. Words have power. Words can either restrain or they can release. Have you noticed that? Words can do one of two things. They can restrain or release. When I was um, younger, I quickly realized that there's nothing quite like a parent's voice. The parents can say your name like nobody else can. And parents can say your name like nobody else can. You know what I mean? That parents actually can say your name in a way that's like, oh, I love you, mom, and I love you, dad. It's comforting. And parents can also say your name in a way where it's like, oh, God, I have to hide. I remember when I was, um, <laughs> when I was a kid, you'd be playing downstairs with your, with your siblings or with your friends or whatever. And you remember when you were playing or maybe doing something you shouldn't do, maybe hanging out too long. You didn't come upstairs. You didn't clean your toys up, whatever. And then you hear the voice. I remember hearing my voice. I can hear what it sounds like when dad is like, tell us. And you stop in your tracks and you're like, oh no, I don't know what happened, but something happened. And you are just on your toes and all of a sudden with just one word, you are restrained because of how your parents said your name or you can be released. I remember I was playing basketball when I was like 10, 11, 12 years old and I was playing in I had a bunch of people that I knew in the stands and they were watching me. It was probably like an all-star game because I was definitely an all-star. And as we were playing basketball, I kept looking over to the, to the stands because I was, I was insecure about who was watching me. So every time I would go and drive to the basket, I'd pull up a three, I was Curry with the shots. And every time I did that, what happened is that I would always look over to see who was looking at me, right? I don't know why you guys are laughing so hard about that. And every time I looked over, I was seeing who was watching me. If I did a good play, are you happy? If I, if I turned the ball over are you sad and and I'll never forget this moment is that when I was playing basketball my dad at halftime during that game he saw me looking over every single time a play finished and he dragged me aside and he, and he 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 does this at halftime and I was so insecure cuz I didn't feel like I was playing well enough and and I didn't really know what I was what I was supposed to do in the moment and dad pulls me aside and he says hey don't pay attention to anyone else in the crowd play your game he said, don't think about them. It's not about them. Don't pay attention to anybody else in the crowd. Play your game. He released me with a word. When I was so built up, insecure, didn't know what to do, was, was kind of anxious about how I was going to perform in front of people, there was a release from my father's words that actually let me loose, freed me up in order to do what I was actually supposed to do. That words can either restrain or they can release. Now, if my dad, who is limited, sinful, and human, can restrain or release me with a word, how much more so can your heavenly father, who is infinite, unlimited, holy and perfect, completely other and completely God, restrain or release with a word. We are people of the word. 
And when God says a word, we see it all throughout scripture. When God says a word, we have to obey. That the world has to obey, that oceans have to part, that people have to come alive, that things have to break and things have to loose. Things are restrained and things are released with God's word. We're people of the word. How much more so will God's word change us? Now, the word of God has a revival power. And I want to read a passage of scripture to us really quick. It's in Acts chapter 8, verse 34 uh, through 39. And, and you don't have to turn there, but this is what it says. Acts chapter 8, verse 34 and 39 says this. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say that this is, does the prophet say this about himself or about somebody else? This is an Ethiopian eunuch who encounters an apostle Philip. And, and Philip, all of a sudden, he was called by an angel, by the Spirit of God, to go in onto this road. And he ends up meeting this Ethiopian eunuch. Now, as he meets this Ethiopian eunuch, he's reading the scriptures. He's actually reading Isaiah. And this is what he says. And then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Now, by simply opening up the scriptures, Philip and this eunuch experienced a revival. Sometimes we think a revival has to come with, with, with this power and with this, this, this manifestation, signs and wonders. And that's amazing. And I hope it does. And I believe that it will. And sometimes it just happens by opening up the scriptures to someone who's interested. And then one person can be revived just by the word of God. And this man goes on rejoicing because he had now been saved. This, this produced a revival inside of his heart. He was now living revived, Philip was, and got to point to the one who made him come alive. He actually opened up the word to this Ethiopian eunuch. If we want to be a revived people, we have to be people of the word. The way that dad says it is simply this, and you know it. Read your Bible every day. Two, fellowship. They dedicated themselves to fellowship. This is what the early church did in Acts chapter 2, is they had this community, this fellowship. And, and I'll tell you this, that no revival will ever happen by yourself. You're not all of the sudden... Just going to say, oh my gosh, I'm, a, a third of, of, of Fairfax County is going to be revived and I'm going to do it all. Now, I hope it does. And every revival that we've looked at, everything that we're following here is that there was community inherently involved in people coming alive in Christ. When we see this, this, this story in, in this example of Acts chapter 2, we have to understand that fellowship, that community, that being together with believers was a vital part of people really living a revived life. It says in Acts chapter 9, verse 19 through 20, In taking food, he was strengthened. And actually, before I read this, let me give you some context. You guys remember Saul who turned into Paul? 
Paul is this guy who wrote two-thirds in the New Testament. And Paul has this amazing conversion actually in Acts chapter 9. And and when he gets converted, what happens is that Paul was living a life that was so anti-Christ, that was so anti-Jesus. He was actually persecuting the church. And all of a sudden, Paul, whose name was Saul at the time, encounters Jesus on this road to Damascus. And as he encounters him, what happens is that the Lord speaks to him and says, stop persecuting my people. You're actually persecuting me. Saul has this moment with God. scales fall upon his eyes and he ends up being blind. And what happens then is that he says, go and wait here. God calls to another man, Ananias, and says, hey, you remember that guy named Saul who was killing all of you guys and persecuting you, throwing you in jail and resisting the work of God? I just saved him. So what you're going to do is you're going to go preach to him and you're going to actually prophesy over him and you're going to go heal him. Ananias is like, you mean Saul, Saul? The Saul that, that, that killed Stephen, Saul? Saul, that, that persecutes us and wants to get rid of us, Saul? You want me to? Nah, you can't be that guy. Ananias begrudgingly goes to Saul, prays for him. Scales fall from his eyes. He's able to see, not just physically, but spiritually. And what happens here is I think one of the most underrated forms of discipleship we ever see in the Bible. It says in Acts chapter 9, verse 19 through 20, And taking food, he was strengthened. And for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. Now, I think we can all agree that Paul was living a revived life. That Paul ends up writing two-thirds of the New Testament. Paul, the foremost of all the apostles. Paul, who brought this gospel to the Gentiles. Paul, who is this legendary figure in the scriptures and a hero of the faith. Paul lived a revived life. But Paul didn't live a revived life alone. We know that in Galatians, Paul actually spent three years with the apostles and the disciples. As soon as Paul was saved, he didn't immediately, like we see here, it says when he spent some time, Paul actually was discipled. Paul was in community. Paul was in fellowship. Paul was with other believers being discipled and formed into the image of Christ day by day. And we think that Paul, all of a sudden, just one day he was Saul, and the next day he was Paul writing Philippians, and next day he was Paul in Malta, and next day he was Paul in this area, and next day he was Paul in that area. And Paul actually spent years being developed and in community so he could live a revived life. Paul went to go spend some time with the disciples in the fellowship of other believers. I'm really convinced that, that the gospel and living a revived life is almost like hot potato. It's like you have this thing, the gospel, you've experienced it, you know it, and then all of a the sudden, there comes a point when that potato is so hot that you've got to give it to somebody else. If the gospel isn't so hot in your hands that you're not giving it to the closest person that you find, I really wonder if we are living as a revived people. Because Paul could not contain the gospel that was in his hands. There had to be some kind of community, some kind of fellowship. The gospel and the good news of Jesus was so hot to him, was so pertinent to his life, and so life-changing for him that he had to go and share it with somebody. 
And I wonder, are we so infatuated with the gospel of Jesus? Have we really understood and taken it into our hearts that God became man, Emmanuel, God with us, lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, actually went to the cross, forgave all of our sin, said, I'm not just going to forgive you. I'm actually going to make you a son and a daughter. And furthermore, I'm going to bring you into my kingdom forever. And furthermore, I'm going to give you my spirit to live revived. And furthermore, don't be, over, don't be stressed because I have overcome the world and you will now live forever with me. Do we really understand that? Do we really know that? Because if we knew how hot this gospel was, we would have to give it to somebody else. We'd have to. Paul was living in community. He was convinced and he was uh, uh, infatuated. And, And because of his community, I really believe that this is the most underrated discipleship we see in all of scripture. Because Paul spent years with these people, says in Galatians, three years with them. And and then after that, what we see is this Paul, the foremost of the apostles. I was with my small group last week, and uh, we got to do a fire pit, which is just so great. I don't know what it is about fire that I love, but I love it. And this fire pit, we were doing s'mores and games and the whole thing. And it was, it was really fun. But as we were building the fire, um, if you've ever done a fire pit, you know, like it's, it's really easy to have some loose coals jump out of the fire pit or some loose like uh, pieces of, 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 of wood or whatever fall out of the fire pit. And I remember as we were um, like enjoying the time in the fire pit, oftentimes like a loose coal would jump out of the fire pit or maybe I'd be like poking it, playing with it, having fun with it. And then all of a sudden loose coal would fall out. And I remember all of us would look at it and be so scared. Oh my gosh, I don't want it to burn me. And over the course of time, we saw that real quickly, you give that coal about like 15 seconds, that thing is going to start to go out. And, and I'm thinking about these coals and I'm thinking about our community and I'm thinking about the similarities. And I'm thinking, and I say, sometimes I think that the community of Christianity are like coals in a fire. That oftentimes gathered coals burn brighter than scattered coals. And we sometimes wonder, God, where are you? Why are you so far away? Why don't I feel your presence? Why don't I have victory in my life? What is going on? Why does my life seem out of control when we have been scattered from the body for months? And we're that coal that jumps out of the fire and burns up like that. And we wonder why we're getting so cold so fast. It's because we're not gathered with other coals. Because as soon as we look at that other fire pit filled with all the coals, let me tell you, that thing will burn and burn and burn for hours. But as soon as one coal jumps out, it's gone. And and there's not something special about one coal, but there is something special about gathered coals. There's something special that gathered coals burn brighter and longer than scattered coals do. If we want to live as a revived people, we have to know that the community of believers and the fellowship of the saints is actually essential to living as a revived people. The breaking of bread. We've talked about the word, we've talked about fellowship, and one thing I really love about the Bible is that it emphasizes food kind of a lot. We see that they devoted themselves to the apostle teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to the breaking of bread. And and when I read this scripture, I'm always like, man, let's praise God. Let's eat. I love that. Let's do it. 
And as I'm reading the scripture, I really believe that that's part of what this scripture is referencing, that we eat together. There's, there's something so, so special about believers eating together, sharing a meal together, especially in antiquity with the, 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 the apostles and the disciples, that there was something special about sharing a meal together. And we even see this with Jesus, actually, in the Last Supper. That Jesus, in one of those most important times in his ministry, communing with his disciples, he actually gathers them around a what? A table. He gathers them around a table. And he shares meals with them. And as I think about this portion of Scripture and the breaking of bed and how this helps us, I also think about a different take on this. That yes, I do believe that God is calling us to be a people that eat together, that do life together, that share meals together. And also, I think there's a separate side of this. It says in um, John chapter 21, verse 13 through 15. To be honest, one of the saddest, I think, stories in all the Bible. Before this, this is when Jesus goes to Peter and this is after Peter has denied Jesus. This is after Peter has ran away from his best friend. Jesus said he would. He would say, you're, you're going to deserve me. He said, Lord, I would never. Said, God, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to die with you. Years he spent with Jesus. At the first sign of trouble, Peter runs. Jesus says, before the crow crows three times, you're going to deny me. And Peter denies Jesus. What happens is Jesus dies. Peter thinks it's over. Peter says, I don't know what to do now. I've denied my best friend. I denied Jesus. Now he's gone and I don't know what to do. Peter goes back to fishing. He goes back to what he always knew. You ever felt like you disappointed God and you went back to fishing? You went back to what you did before you knew Jesus? You went back to what Jesus actually called you out of? You went fishing? Peter's fishing on the sea and all of a sudden he's catching nothing. He sees a man on the shore. The man on the shore says, hey, throw your net on the other side. I can only imagine that Peter thought about that because throwing your net on the other side is the same thing that Jesus said to him the first time when he encountered him. Hey, throw your net on the other side. Then they take in this catch of fish. I'll make you fishers of men. Peter drops his net and leaves. As soon as Peter hears that, they catch an, uh, an amount of fish that is unheard of. And what happens that Peter all of a sudden has this light bulb moment, jumps out of the boat, totally forgets the fish and swims ashore to Jesus. This beautiful reconciliation of Peter going back. And I can only imagine Peter has tears streaming down his face because he sees Jesus and Jesus was dead and now he's alive and he sees them. And that's where we're at in John chapter 21, verse 13. And it says this, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. And now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead, and listen to this. When they had finished breakfast, one of the first things Jesus does is that he makes them breakfast. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, then feed my lambs. Jesus, if you know the story, goes on and asks him two more times, reinstating him as a disciple and an apostle, the same amount of times that Peter denies him. A beautiful, 
beautiful story. And what I also find so interesting about this story, now breaking of bread, is Jesus broke bread not just with Peter in John 21, but also with the disciples at the Last Supper. And I'm going somewhere with this. When, when, when Jesus broke bread with the disciples at the Last Supper, what does he say? He says, hey, I take it and I break it. This is my body broken for you. Whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me. What I think that Luke is saying in Acts chapter 2, the breaking of bread, is not just sharing a meal with believers, but it's also a nod to Jesus in communion, and that is remembering Christ. Jesus says, whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And when Jesus encounters Peter... On the shore in John 21, he actually makes him food. And at the same time that Jesus makes him food, what does he do? He reminds him of the relationship that he has with him. That inherently in food and breaking of bread, his body being broken for him, inherently in that truth is the fact of remembering Jesus. So what do I think that we need to do? As people who are trying to live revived by the power of the Holy Spirit, when we see that we need to break bread, what I see is that we need to remember Jesus. That if we're trying to be a revived people, it's not just about doing things on our own and developing structures and, 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 and places and places and spaces where we can try and show off our good deeds, but we have to remember Jesus in everything that we do. That there's an element to remembering Christ in being a revived people. And when we remember, when we break bread and remember Christ, we can be a revived people. What mercy God showed, Jesus showed to Peter. In saying, I don't want you to remember your faults. I want you to remember my grace. I don't want you to remember how you denied me three times. In fact, I'm going to ask you how many times do you love me so I can have you, I'm going to give you a new memory. I'm going to give you a new remembrance that God in the person of Jesus was actually redefining Peter's memory. If we want to live as a revived people, we have to remember Christ. As the worship team comes up, we're about to worship in. When I was um, looking at this, this last point we're going to talk about, I was really encouraged because when we think about Jesus and when we think about being a revived people, these four things are maybe not exhaustive, but they're very, very important. When we remember Jesus, it produces a humility in our lives. And to receive, to revive the spirit of the lowly, it says in Isaiah 57, and to revive the heart of the contrite. To live as a revived people, we have to remember Jesus. And the last one is prayer. Prayer, this is a story that some of us know a lot of, but I want to give some context to it. It says, in every, I believe in every revival, no, I know in every revival, what's important is that we or have to be a people of prayer. In every revival, what it takes is that we have to be a people of prayer. 
In Acts 2.42 is four simple things to, to the, 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 the fellowship of the believers, to the word of God, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And when we pray to God for revival, it's not that we're trying to twist his arm into thinking or doing something that we want him to do. Because it says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, And the Lord is slow to, is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. And listen to this, not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. That it's God's will for us that all should reach repentance. And when we look at the story of prayer, there's a story that comes up in the book of Acts with Paul and one of his friends, Silas. And it says this in Acts 16, 25. This is a story of Paul and Silas being thrown into jail. And as they're thrown into jail, what you would find normal people doing is sulking and complaining and looking at God and pointing a finger at God and saying, God, where are you? Especially these men who were doing the will of God. And, and, and what you find Paul and Silas do in Acts 16, 25 is this. is about midnight, Paul and Silas were what? Were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. To be a revived people, prayer has to be part of our day-to-day -day lives. And as Paul and Silas, if you know the story, what happens is that Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns to God in their prison. Some of us feel like it's the midnight hour in our, in our country right now. It's the midnight hour, God. It, it is the furthest away from light on one side and the furthest away from light on the other. It's been dark for a while and it's not going to be light for a while. We're in midnight. And furthermore, it's not just midnight, but I'm in a prison. I'm, I am trapped in darkness. I'm not sure what to do with what I have. I feel like it's midnight. And we see Paul and Silas praying and singing hymns to God. And what happens as soon as we follow this passage in Acts chapter 16, we can't read it, but I'll tell you. What happens is that the jails fling open. There's a mighty earthquake and all of the prisoners are free. And that's a beautiful part of scripture because prisoners are freed and, and it says that our praise and our prayer can not just set us free, but it can set the people around us free. And it's an amazing story. But furthermore, what happens is that the Philippian jailer that's there realizes that everyone's escaped and he's getting ready to kill himself because he knows that if he doesn't, somebody else will. And Paul and Silas approach this Philippian jailer and what they do is they say, hey, don't do it, don't do it. And they preach the gospel to him. And what happens is that this Philippian jailer ends up becoming saved, he and his whole family. And furthermore, this Philippian jailer is the first Philippian saved. Which tells me what? That this Philippian jailer was the first church planner for the church of Philippi. That through prayer and through hymns, a revival sparked in a city because Paul and Silas didn't just take the midnight jail circumstance, but they prayed to God in it. And eventually a city was revived because of it. That prayer is part of being a revived people. And when we think about prayer, it's not just about like, oh God, would you do something special? And some of us think, oh man, like, well, if God wants everyone to be saved, like, what is my prayer going to do? And then the beautiful thing is if we go to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says this, it's the Lord's Prayer, a template of how we should pray. But the beautiful thing is before Jesus actually says this, before he says this is how you should pray, he says, guess what? Your father already knows what you need before you ask him. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus says, 
Your father already knows what you need before you ask him. So pray. What? Your father already knows what you need, so tell him what you need. What does that tell you? It tells you that God doesn't need your prayers, but he wants them. That God's not going to make the revival dependent on whether you pray or don't pray, but he wants you to. That God isn't making you pray because it's what he needs in order to make people come alive in Christ, but he wants you to. It's that father who's asking a child to participate in the revival of a city. And I hope that we have some people in this room who feel an ownership and a responsibility for the city that they live in, who are saying, God, I'm not just going to wait for you to do something and sit on the sidelines, but I'm going to be a revived person knowing that God knows what I need before I ask. And so I'm going to ask. I'm going to be a revived people. I'm going to live revived. This is what Paul and Silas did, is that they lived as a revived people. And let me tell you something, church, that living as a revived people means that revival lives in you. Pastor AJ's message was so good last week. And what he was talking about at the end of the message, this is my last point, is the spirit of God, the the breath of God, and this ruach of God. And the ruach of God is is literally the breath, the, the breath of God. It's the spirit of God that empowers the work of God. And when I thought about the spirit of God and the breath of God and the work of God, what I see here is is something so special because if we want to be a revived people, it cannot be separated from the work of the Holy Spirit. You cannot manufacture revival on your own. You cannot put on a good enough church service. I can't. You can't. We can't do enough in ourselves to be a revived people. We have to have the Holy Spirit revive us. And the way that happens is through the breath of God. And as I was thinking, this is my last point, as I was thinking about what breath does and what breath doesn't, how important breath is to be a revived people. And I was thinking about what it means to burn for God. And, and, and I, was, I was thinking about fire. I told you I love fire. Is that I was thinking about the difference between being an exploding Christian and a burning Christian. An exploding Christian and a burning Christian. That combustion and, and detonation. That there's a difference between the two. And living as a revived people is being a burning Christian. But living and just having a moment of revival is being an exploding Christian. What do I mean? is that I think that we need to be people who are focused on embers over explosions. If we look at an explosion, what an explosion is, is an explosion is is a moment that requires a single suitable explosive material and energy. An explosion is one that is amazing in the moment. It's cool for a moment. You had a great experience. It can can even have a big impact in a moment, but it's momentary and short-lived. And then as soon as we switch over to the other side of of, of a burning Christian, what we see is that a burning Christian needs the same thing as an exploding Christian. It needs actually a heat source. It needs a fuel source. But guess what the difference between an explosion and a burn is? Oxygen. Some of us don't get it yet. It's, it's, It's oxygen. It's breath. It's the ruach. It's the spirit of God. And there can be a lot of moments where you can explode for a moment. 
where you can have an experience of God and you can be revived in a moment. But if we want to be a revived people, we don't just need the heat. We don't just need the fuel, but we need the Spirit of God, the Ruach of God, the oxygen of God to make something burn and not just explode. And the breath of God, once we experience the breath of God, what happens is that the revival lasts longer than us. Your revival isn't just for you. Your revival is for your city. Your revival is for your family. Your revival is for your co-workers. And your revival is for your neighbors. If you want to explode, that's fine. You don't need the Spirit of God to explode. But you do need the Spirit of God to burn. And if you want to burn for God, you need the breath of God. The breath of God. It's not just about systems and processes and procedures. We need God to breathe on us. And as we focus on what it means to be a revived people, we need to be Christians who are not focused on explosions, but are focused on embers. That an explosion might be impressive for a moment, but it's not going to have any lasting impact. But let me tell you, if you have one ember in California, that produces a forest fire. What if you're the ember that the city needs? Like, really, just think about it. What if you're the ember that this city needs? And if this city needs embers and not just explosions, these people who are burning for God and not just momentarily living for God, a revived people, we need the Spirit of God because revivals are born from burning Christians, not exploding Christians. We burn And it's four simple ways, church. It's we burn in the word of God. We can burn in the fellowship of the believers. We can burn in the breaking of bread. And we can burn in prayer. I want to encourage you, church. Don't just explode for Jesus in a moment, but burn for him for a lifetime. Will you pray with me? Lord, we need you. We need you, Jesus. We need you, Spirit. God, would you breathe? Lord, we're not enough unless you breathe. The city won't be changed unless you breathe. And we know that the Word of God moves the Spirit of God to accomplish the work of God. And we know that you have called all men unto yourself. And Lord, I just feel the Spirit of God just that as we lift him, he will draw. As we lift God up, he will draw. And Lord, as you draw unto us, as we lift you up in our people, as we lift you up in our church, as we lift you up in our families, as we lift you up in our work, as we lift you up in our private time, as we lift you up in this place, God, would you establish your church in burning Christians that we might burn for the glory of God in our city, that people might know you and there might be a revival breakout. So Holy Spirit, break out in our city. Holy Spirit, break out in our lives. Holy Spirit, break out in this church. Holy Spirit, break out in our families. Holy Spirit, break out. And would you breathe? God, breathe. God, breathe. Lord, breathe. Holy Spirit, move. Holy Spirit, move. God, we need your spirit. We need your spirit. So spirit, fall.
alone in this place. We're not waiting for tomorrow. We're not waiting for a revival service. We're not waiting for an experience. Lord, breathe. We're gonna go in this song in church. Would you be a burning Christian for his glory? Would you burn for the glory of God? Would you burn in worship? And by the Spirit of God, would we be a people of God who burns for the glory of God? In Jesus' name, amen.